and probably felt that the Prophet ought to consider a favor or honor was now being shown him. But officially, Elisha was an ambassador of the King of Kings, and with becoming dignity he let Naaman know that he was at no man's beck and call, though he failed not to inform him of the way in which healing was to be obtained. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Here we see no servile obeisance, nor owning of the mightiness of Naaman. The prophet did not even greet him, nor so much as go out of his house to meet him in person. Instead, he sent him a message by a servant. Ah, my hero, God is no respecter of persons, nor should his ministers be. Incalculable harm has been wrought in churches by pastors pandering to those in high places, for not only are the haughty injured thereby, but the lowly are stumbled, and in consequence the Holy Spirit is grieved and quenched. God will not tolerate any parading of fleshly distinctions before Him, that no flesh should glory in His presence. 1 Corinthians 1.29 is the unrepealable decision. The most eminent and gifted of this world are due no more consideration from the Most High than the street sweeper, for there is no difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.22 and 23 All alike have broken the law. All alike are guilty before the Supreme Judge. All alike must be saved by sovereign grace, if they be saved at all. But there is another way in which we may regard the Prophet's conduct on this occasion. Not only did he maintain his official dignity, but he evidenced personal humility and prudence, having his eye fixed on the glory of God. It is not that he was indifferent to Naaman's welfare, no, the fact that he sent his servant out to him with the needful directions evidenced the contrary. But Elisha knew full well that the all-important thing was not the messenger, but the message. It mattered nothing who delivered the message, himself or his servant, but it mattered everything that the God-given word should be faithfully communicated. Elisha knew full well that Naaman's expectation lay in himself. So, like a true man of God, he directed attention away from himself. What a needed lesson for us in this creature-exalting day! How much better would preachers serve souls and honor their master if thus hidden they occupied them with the gospel instead of with themselves. It was in this self-effacing spirit that Paul rebuked the creature-worshipping Corinthians when he said, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed? 1 Corinthians 3.5 
so too our Lord's forerunner who styled himself the voice, heard but not seen, of one crying in the wilderness. John 1.23 What was the force of Go wash in Jordan seven times? Let us give first a general answer in the words of another. When Naaman stood with his pompous retinue and with all his silver and gold at the door of Elisha, he appears before us as a marked illustration of a sinner building on his own efforts after righteousness. He seemed furnished with all that the heart could desire, but in reality all his preparations were but a useless encumbrance and the prophet soon gave him to understand this. Go wash, swept away all confidence in gold, silver, raiment, retinue, the king's letter, everything. It stripped Naaman of everything and reduced him to his true condition as a poor, defiled leper needing to be washed. It put no difference between the illustrious commander-in-chief of the hosts of Syria and the poorest and meanest leper in all the coasts of Israel. The former could do nothing less. The latter needed nothing more. Wealth cannot remedy man's ruin, and poverty cannot interfere with God's remedy. Nothing that a man has done need keep him out of heaven. Nothing that he can do will ever get him in. Go wash, is the word in every case. But let us consider this go wash more closely and ponder it in the light of its connections. As one stricken with leprosy, Naaman pictures the natural man in his fallen estate. And what is the outstanding and distinguishing characteristic of such? Why, that he is a depraved creature, a sinner, a rebel against God. And what is sin? From the negative side, it is failure to submit to God's authority and be subject to His law. Positively, it is the exercise of self-will, a determination to please myself. We have turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah 53, 6 If then a sinner inquires of God's servant the way of recovery, what is the first and fundamental thing which needs to be told to? Why this? That self-will and self-pleasing must cease. That he must submit himself to the will of God. And that is only another way of saying that he must be converted. For conversion is a turning round, a right about face. And in order to conversion, repentance is the essential requisite. Acts 3.19 And in its final analysis, repentance is the taking sides with God against myself, judging myself, condemning myself, bowing my will to His. Again, sin is not only a revolt against God, 
but a deification of self. It is a determination to gratify my own inclinations. It is a saying, I will be Lord over myself. That was the bait which the serpent dangled before our first parents when he tempted Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. Ye shall be as gods. Genesis 3, 5 Casting off allegiance to God, man assumed an attitude of independency and self-sufficiency. Sin taking possession of his heart, he became proud, haughty, self-righteous. If then such a creature is to be recovered and restored to God, it must necessarily be by a process of humbling him. The first design of the gospel is to put down human pride, to lay man low before God. It was predicted by Isaiah when speaking of gospel times, the lofty looks of men shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. Isaiah 2.11 And again, every mountain shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight. Isaiah 44 And therefore did our Lord begin His Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.3 That was the basic truth which the prophet pressed upon Naaman, that he must abase himself before the God of Israel. Go wash in Jordan seven times was but another way of saying to the conceited Syrian, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. James 4, 6-10 Naaman must come down from off his high horse and take his proper place before the Most High. Naaman must descend from his chariot and evidence a lowly spirit. Naaman must wash or bathe as the word is often translated, in the waters of the Jordan, not once or twice, but no less than seven times, and thus completely renounce self. And the requirement which God made of Naaman, my hero, is precisely the same as his demand upon you, upon me. Pride has to be mortified, self-will relinquished, self-righteousness repudiated. Have we complied therewith? Have we renounced self-pleasing and surrendered to the divine scepter? Have we given ourselves to the Lord, 2 Corinthians 8, 5, to be ruled by Him? If not, we have never been savingly converted and its ultimate significance, the 
Go wash in Jordan seven times had a typical import. And in the light of the New Testament, there is no difficulty whatever in perceiving what that was. There is one provision, and one only, which the amazing grace of God and the wondrous love of His Son has made for the healing of spiritual lepers. It is that blessed fountain which has been opened for sin and for uncleanness. Zechariah 13.1 That holy fountain had its rise at Calvary when from the pierced side of Christ forthwith came there out blood and water. John 19.34 That wondrous fountain which can cleanse the foulest was provided at the incalculable cost of the crucifixion of Emmanuel, and hence the washing in Jordan, which ever speaks of death. Here then, dear friend, is the evangelical significance of what has been before us. If you have been made conscious of your depravity, ready to deny self, willing to humble yourself, into the dust before God, here is the divine provision, a bath into which by faith you may plunge and thereby obtain proof that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7 If by grace you have already done so, then join the writer in exclaiming, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, to him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Chapter 17 Tenth Miracle In the last chapter we dwelt mainly upon the requirement which was made upon Naaman when he reached the prophet's abode. Go and wash in Jordan seven times, seeking to supply answers to why was he so enjoined? What was the implication in his case? What bearing has such a demand upon men generally today? What is its deeper significance? We saw that it was a requirement which revealed the uselessness and worthlessness of Naaman's attempt to purchase his healing. We showed that it was a requirement which demands the setting aside of his own will and submitting himself to the will of Israel's God. We pointed out that it was a requirement which insisted that he must get down off his high horse, descend from his chariot, humbling and abasing himself. We intimated that it was a requirement which typically pointed to that amazing provision of the grace of God for spiritual lepers, namely the fountain which has been opened for sin and for uncleanness. Zechariah 13.1 and by which alone defilement can be cleansed and iniquities blotted out. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, 
Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand, and call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Second Kings 5.11 In his own country he was a person of consequence, a great man, commander-in-chief of the army, standing high in the favor of the king. Here in Israel, the prophet had treated him as a mere nobody, paying no deference to him, employing a servant to convey his instructions. Naaman was chagrined, his pride was wounded, and because his self-importance had not been ministered to, he turned away in a huff. Elisha's go and wash in Jordan seven times was not intended to signify the means of cure, but was designed as a test of his heart, and strikingly did it serve its purpose. It was a call to humble himself before Jehovah. It required the repudiation of his own wisdom and the renunciation of self-pleasing and that is at direct variance with the inclinations of fallen human nature, so much so that no one ever truly complied with this just demand of God until he performed a miracle of grace in the soul. Even the most humiliating providences are not sufficient in themselves to humble the proud heart of man and render him submissive to the divine will. One had thought that a person so desperately afflicted as this poor leper would have been meekened and ready to comply with the prophet's injunction. Ah, my hearer, the seat of our moral disease lies too deep for external things to reach it. So fearful is the blinding power of sin that it causes its subjects to be puffed up with self-complacency and self-righteousness and to imagine they are entitled to favorable treatment even at the hands of the Most High. Aye, does not that very spirit lurk in the hearts of the regenerate? And not only lurk there, but at times moves them to act like Naaman? Has not the writer and the Christian hearer, never come before the Lord with some pressing need and sought relief at his hands, and then been angry because he responded to us in quite a different way from what we expected and desired. Have we not had to bow our heads for very shame as he gently reproved us with his, Doest thou well to be angry? Jonah 4 verse 4 Yes, there is much of this Naaman spirit in each of us that needs to be mortified. Behold, I thought, said Naaman. Herein he supplies a true representation of the natural man. The sinner has his own idea of how salvation is to be obtained. It is true that opinions vary when it comes to the working out of detail, yet the world over, fallen man has his own opinion of what is suitable and needful. 
One man thinks he must perform some meritorious deeds in order to obtain forgiveness. Another thinks the past can be atoned for by turning over a new leaf and living right for the future. Yet another, who has obtained a smattering of the gospel, thinks that by believing in Christ, he secures a passport to heaven, even though he continues to indulge the flesh and retain his beloved idols. However much they may differ in their self-concocted schemes, this one thing is common to them all. I thought, and that I thought is put over against the word and way of God. They prefer the way that seemeth right unto them. They insist on following out their own theorizings. They pit their prejudices and presuppositions against the thus saith the Lord. Here, you perceive here the folly of Naaman, but have you seen the madness of setting your thoughts against the authority of the living God? And what was it that this foolish and haughty Syrian thought? By this, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. He was willing to be restored to health, but it must be in his own way, a way in which his self-respect might be retained and his importance acknowledged. He desired to be healed, provided he should also be duly honored. He had come all the way from Syria to be rid of his leprosy, but he was not prepared to receive cleansing in the manner of God's prescribing. What madness! What a demonstration that the carnal mind is enmity against God. What proof of the fearful hold which Satan has over his victims until a stronger one delivers them from his enthralling power. Naaman had now received what the king of Israel had failed to give him, full directions for his cure. There was no uncertainty about the prescription nor of its efficacy, would he but submit to the same. Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thou shalt be clean. But he felt slighted. Such instructions suited not his inclinations. The divine requirement accorded not with the conceits of his unhumbled heart. What right had Naaman a leper? to either argue or prescribe. He was a petitioner and not a legislator. He was suing for a favor and therefore was in no position to advance any demands of his own. If such was the case and situation of Naaman, how infinitely less has any depraved and guilty sinner the right to make any terms with God. He is a criminal, justly pronounced guilty by the divine law. Mercy is his only hope, and it is therefore for God to say in what way mercy is to be shown him, 
and how salvation is to be obtained. For this reason the Lord says, not only let the wicked forsake his way, but also adds, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Isaiah 55, 7 Man must repudiate his own ideas, abandon his own prejudices, turn away from his own schemes and reject his own preferences. If we are to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must become as little children. Matthew 18.3 Alas, of the vast majority of our fellows, it has to be said that they, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Romans 10.3 They will not come to Christ that they might have life. John 5.40 C.E. Stewart wrote, In Naaman's mind all was arranged. He pictured the scene to himself and made himself the foremost figure in the group. The Gentile idolater waited on by the prophet of God. The incongruity of this he did not then see. We see it. God would visit him in grace, but as one who had no ground of his own to stand on. As a sinner, he could beat him. As a leper, he could heal him. As the captain of the hosts of the king of Syria, he would not receive him. What place has a sinner before God save that of one to whom mercy can be shown? What place is suited to the leper save that outside the camp? Naaman has to learn his place. He may be wroth with the prophet, but he cannot move him. Before him he is only a leper, whatever he may appear before others. Learning his place, he has to learn his vileness. He imagined Elisha would have struck his hand over the place. A sign, a scene, he expected, not a mere word. He did not know what a defiling object he was. The priest looked on the leopard to judge whether he was leprous or not. He touched him only when he was clean. Leviticus 14 Of Naaman's leprosy there was no doubt, for he had come to be healed of it. To touch him ere he was clean would only have defiled the prophet. But further, if he had been able to touch him and so have healed him, would not man have thought there was virtue in the prophet? By sending him to the Jordan to wash, it would be clearly seen the cure was direct from God. Man has no virtue in himself. He can only be the channel of God's grace to others. God must have all the glory of the cure, and Naaman must be taught his own condition and vileness. End of quote. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? 
So he turned and went away in a rage. Verse 12. Naaman was incensed, not only because he thought that insufficient respect had been shown to his own person, but also because he felt his country had been slighted. If it was merely a matter of bathing in some river, why could not those of his own land have sufficed? This was tantamount to dictating unto Jehovah, for it was the word of his prophet he now challenged. Shall the beggar insist on his right to choose what form the supply of his need must take? Shall the patient inform the physician what remedy will be acceptable to him? Is the guilty culprit to have the effrontery to dictate to the judge what shall be done unto him? Yet a worm of the earth deems himself competent to pit his wits against the wisdom of the Ancient of Days. A hell-deserving sinner is impudent enough to draw up terms on which he considers heaven is due him. But if we are to be cleansed, it can only be by the way of God's appointing and not by any of our own devising. Matthew Henry writes, He thinks this too cheap, too plain, too common a thing for so great a man to be cured by, or he did not believe it would at all effect the cure, or if it would, what medicinal virtue was there in Jordan more than in the rivers of Damascus? But he did not consider, one, that Jordan belonged to Israel's God, from whom he was to expect a cure, and not from the gods of Damascus. It watered the Lord's land, the Holy Land, and in a miraculous cure, relation to God was much more considerable than the depth of the channel or the beauty of the stream. Two, that Jordan had more than once before this obeyed the commands of omnipotence. It had of old yielded a passage to Israel and of late to Elijah and Elisha, and therefore was fitter for such a purpose than those rivers which had only observed the common law of their creation and had never been thus distinguished. But above all, Jordan was the river appointed, and if he expected a cure from the divine power, he ought to acquiesce in the divine will, without asking why or wherefore. It is common for those that are wise in their own conceits to look with contempt on the dictates and prescriptions of divine wisdom, and to prefer their own fancies before them. Unquote. So he turned and went away in a rage. How true to life! How accurate the picture! The flesh resents the humbling truth of God and hates to be abased. And let us say here, for the benefit of a number of young preachers who are likely to hear this, you must expect some of your hearers to turn from you in anger if you faithfully minister the Word of God in its undiluted purity. It has ever been thus. 
If the prophets of the Lord incensed their hearers, can you expect your message will be palatable to the unregenerate? If the incarnate Son of God had to say, Because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. John 8.45 Can you expect the truth to meet with a better welcome from your lips? If the chief of the apostles declared, For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Galatians 1.10 Do you expect to be popular with them? There is but one way to avoid displeasing your hearers, and that is by unfaithfulness to your trust, by carnal compromise, by blunting the sharp edge of the sword of the Spirit, by keeping back what you know will prove unacceptable. In such an event, God will require their blood at your hand, and you will forfeit the approbation of your Master. So he turned and went away in a rage. And thus we may see the final effort of Satan to retain his victim ere divine grace delivered him. The rage of Naaman was but the reflection of his whom he had hitherto served, and who was now furious at the prospect of losing him. It reminds us of the case recorded in Luke 9, 38 to 42. A father of a demon-possessed child had sought for help from the apostles, which they had been unable to render. As the Savior came down from the mount, the poor father approached him, and he gave orders, Bring thy son to me. And we are told, And as he was yet a-coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. Verse 42. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. It is frequently thus the conflict which is waged in the soul is usually sorest just before peace is found. Lust's rage, unbelief seeks to wax supreme. The truth of sovereign grace, when first apprehended, is obnoxious. To be told our righteousnesses are as filthy rags stirs up enmity. Satan fills his soul with rage against God, against his truth, against his servant. Often that is a hopeful sign, for it at least shows that the sinner has been aroused from the fatal sleep of indifference. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, If the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Verse 13 Let us consider first the surface teaching of this verse. This general remonstrance was a word spoken in season. Had Naaman remained calm and reasonable, He should have perceived that what was required of him was simple and safe, and neither difficult nor dangerous. Had the prophet prescribed some laborious and lengthy task, 
or ordered a drastic operation or painful remedy. Probably Naaman had complied without a murmur. So why not do so when no other sacrifice was demanded of him but the humbling of his pride? Thomas Scott said, When sinners are under serious impressions and as yet prejudiced against the Lord's method of salvation, they should be reasoned with in meekness and love and persuaded to make trial of its simplicity. End of quote. If it be necessary to rebuke their petulance and point out to them the foolishness of their proud reasoning, we should make it evident that our rebuke proceeds from a desire for their eternal welfare. Matthew Henry wrote, It is a great mercy to have those about us that will be free with us and faithfully tell us our faults and follies, though they be our inferiors. Masters must be willing to hear reason from their inferiors. Job 31, 13, and 14 As we should be deaf to the counsel of the ungodly, though given by the greatest and most venerable names, So we should have our ears open to good advice, though brought to us by those who are much below us. No matter who speaks, if it be well said, the reproof was modest and respectful. They called him Father, for servants must honor and obey their masters with a kind of filial affection. End of quote. Alas, How far has our socialistic and Bolshevistic generation departed from the sound teaching of our Puritan forebears? How few ministers of the gospel now proclaim the divine injunction, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. 1 Timothy 6, 1 It may be those servants had heard quite a lot from the Hebrew maid of the wondrous miracles that had been wrought by Elisha, and hence they were very desirous that Naaman should try out his directions. Or perhaps it was because they were deeply devoted to their master, holding him in high esteem and felt he was forsaking his own mercies by permitting his wounded vanity to now blind his better judgment. At any rate, they saw no sense in coming all the way from Syria and now leaving Samaria without at least making trial of the prophet's prescription. Such are the suggestions made by the commentators to explain the ground and spring of this action of Naaman's attendance. Personally, We prefer to look higher and see the power of the Most High in operation, working in them both to will and to do of His good pleasure, employing them as one more link in the chain which brought about the accomplishment of His purpose. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11.36 What has been before us here 
is in full accord with the other things already contemplated. It seemed quite unlikely that any serious attention should be paid to this simple statement of the captive Hebrew maid. But God saw to it that her words did not fall to the ground. It appeared very much as though Naaman's mission was blocked when the skeptical king of Israel failed to cooperate therein. But God moved Elisha to intervene and caused his royal master to carry out his order. And now that Naaman himself turned away from the prophet in a rage, it certainly looked as though the quest would prove unsuccessful. But that could not be. The Almighty had decreed that the Syrian should be healed of his leprosy and brought to acknowledge that the God of Israel was the true and living God and all the powers of evil could not prevent the fulfillment of his decree. Yet according as he is generally pleased to work, so here he used human instruments in the accomplishing of his purpose. It may be concluded that naturally and normally those attendants had kept their place and distance and would not have dared to remonstrate with their master while he was in such a rage. Behold the secret power of God working within them, subduing their fears and moving them to appeal unto Naaman. The little maid was not present to speak to her august master and plead with him to further his best interests. The prophet of the Lord had issued his instructions only for them to be despised. What then? Shall Naaman return home unhealed? No, such a thing was not possible. He was to learn there was a God in Israel and that he had thoughts of mercy toward him. But he must first be abased. Mark then how God acted. He moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform oftentimes unperceived and unappreciated by us. He inclines his own followers to admonish Naaman and show him the folly of his proud reasoning. Remarkable and significant is it to observe the particular instruments the Lord here employed. It was first the servant maid whom he used to inform Naaman that there was a prophet in Israel by whom he could obtain healing. Then it was through his servant that Elisha gave the Syrian the needed instructions. And now it was his own servants who prevailed upon him to heed those instructions. All of this was intended for the humbling of the mighty Naaman, and, we may add, for our instruction. We must take the servant's place and have the servant's spirit if we would hope for God to employ us. See here too the amazing patience and long-sufferance of the Lord. Here was one who was wrathful against his faithful prophet. What wonder then had he struck him down in his tracks? Here was a haughty creature who refused to humble himself and, in effect, impudently dictated to God how he should receive healing. 
Had he been on his knees supplicating the divine favor, his attitude had been a becoming one. Instead, he turns his back upon God's servant and moves away in a rage. Yet it was then that God acted, not against him, but for him, so that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And why? Because sovereign mercy had ordained him a vessel unto honor from all eternity. Let the Christian hearer join with the writer in looking back to the past, recalling when we too kicked against the pricks, how infinite was the forbearance of God toward us. Though we had no regard for him, he had set his heart upon us, and perhaps at the very time when our awful enmity against him was most high-handedly operative, he moved someone of comparative obscurity to reason with us and point out to us the folly of our ways and urge us to submit to God's holy requirements. Chapter 18 Tenth Miracle That to which we devoted much of our attention in previous meditations was the requirement made upon Naaman, because that demand and his compliance therewith is the hinge on which this miracle turns, as the response made by the sinner to the call of the gospel settles whether or not he is to be cleansed from his sins. This does not denote that the success or failure of the gospel is left contentious upon the will of men, but rather announces that order of things which God has instituted, an order in which he acts as moral governor and in which man is dealt with as a moral agent. In consequence of the fall, man is filled with enmity against God and is blind to his eternal interest. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, 
since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.